right before Jesus was betrayed and arrested, he prayed for his disciples and for all Christians who would come after them. That means hear us today. Knowing what he prayed gives us great hope and helps us to know what matters to him most. As you listen to his prayer, take note of what concerns him and how he expresses it to his father. And so as Derek reads scripture to us, please stand. Good morning, everyone. Today's reading is John 17, verses 1 to 26, and you can find it in the Pew Bibles, page 960. That's page 960. Please excuse the croaky voice. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you gave him authority over all people, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and you have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, because I have given them the word you gave me. They have received them, and I have known and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by your name, that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and none of them is lost, except the son of destruction, so the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world, so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. I sanctify them, I sanctify myself for them, so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one, 
as you, Father in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be as one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be given to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them, and they will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I and, and may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> now on a day like today, it's uh, just such a joy to see you here, but in particular, one of the delights for me is seeing all the children as they make their way back there. And it was kind of unusual for me when I came here to see the children leaving up through the front because it just kind of interrupts everything, right? But then I've come to realize, actually, it's really good to see all our children go. It helps us to know that they're here to pray for them. But I don't know if you noticed that it's not just parents that go out with the children. They tend to come back in as soon as they drop them off, but there are many people who go back to help with the children, to teach them God's word. I'm so thankful for them. But in particular, this week, I'm really delighted to let you know that Jen Burroughs has been brought on as our um, coordinator of the children's and youth ministry. And we've been praying about this for a long time. Jen has been doing it partly voluntarily since November. And so I'm delighted that now we can pay her for that and also that she's gonna be freed up to do a whole lot more. And I'll tell you what, that's going to be one of the best places to be serving in the church. If you don't know where you're serving yet, you might want to consider peeking in there and joining up because it's going to be fantastic. Well, before we get into God's word, there's one other thing I just wanted to make a, a slight correction. Um, originally, the service was going to be led by Ian, but he came down with a bit of a bug. And so thank you for Roger for stepping in. And just about the extra time tonight, we're going to be doing an extended one, about an hour and a half. We're going to be looking at the Bible and psychology and are they compatible? How do they work together? And we'll be having a guest with us as well to share about his experience with uh, the mental health industry and then just personally with biblical counseling. So I do hope you'll come tonight to just consider, is God's word sufficient to help us with these areas that we call psychology? Well, why don't you open up your Bible right now to 1 Peter chapter 4. And in that pew Bible, you can find that on page 1077. And the title for this sermon is Entrust Yourself to a Faithful Creator. Now, if you don't have an English Bible at home, we want you to have one. So visit the Connect Corner at the end of the service, and one of our hosts will be glad to give you one for free. And as always, if you don't understand the Bible, you want to get some help on how to read it and study it, let us know as well, and we'll follow up with you. Well, as we begin, let's just turn to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, it is amazing to think that before we woke up this morning, you were working. You were putting this world together, keeping it rotating. And in fact, 
you have not just planned out this day, but you've planned the history from the beginning to the end. And then you went ahead and told it to us in the Bible. You've, you've showed us what is coming and, and what has been and why. Uh, you told us that we can expect that hostility is going to increase against the gospel. And you've showed us that we can be fearful as well. And that is a reality for many of us. We'd rather hide our faith. We'd rather just pe- keep quiet to try to keep the peace. And so, Father, would you forgive us for the times when we do act out of fear of man and not trust you for the courage? I do pray, Lord, that today, through your word, you might help us to trust you more. And I pray that through your word, you would help us to know that we can stand firm in your true grace. I pray you do this for our joy and for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray in his name, amen. Well, I don't know if you know about a ministry called Open Doors. It's been around for a while based out of the UK. And one of the things that they do is they track persecution of Christians throughout the world. And they then publish that information so the church can be praying for our brothers and sisters around the world. And they estimated that last year, almost 5,000 Christians were killed because of their faith. 90% of those were in the country of Nigeria. Now, this is, it gets beyond just killing. It touches on things like, for example, last year, over 15,000 churches or public Christian properties were attacked, were closed. And that is seven times more than the year before in 2022. And out of those 15,000 that were closed down, 10,000 of them were in China. Now, one thing I love about our church is the mixture of different nationalities that we have here. But we have people who have come from countries that are on the top 50 of most persecuted nations. For example, in Bhutan, it's the number 36 on the list. Uh, Their formal Christian gatherings are illegal. And one Christian said, I learned that we should glorify God with our lives and that we need to accept persecution because it is inevitable in our life. On the list, China is 19. And a Christian named Kyung, his house church was raided and it was closed down. And he felt, as you can imagine, anxious and worried about this. His pastor was arrested and put into jail until he can pay off the nearly 33,000 pound fine for holding a church service. And then he and his wife were fined almost 6,000 pounds as well, and they were forced to flee the village that they lived in. And he said, it's our first time to encounter this, but we are grateful that after this incident, our brothers and sisters never cease praying for one another and lift each other up with words of encouragement. India, it's number 11 on the list. Uh, You've probably heard about the uprisings there, but it's not uncommon in parts of the country for armed Hindu extremists to go door-to-door just to assault Christians. Last year, in the eastern state of Manipur, 400 churches were burned down, and 50,000 Christians were forced to leave their homes, and they don't have a home anymore. One pastor, he was beaten unconscious by a mob, and as he was recovering in the hospital the next day, they came into the hospital and beat him again. And he said, though I was attacked twice, I can still feel God's protection in my life. I was attacked yet not crushed. I will continue to trust my God and serve him wherever the Lord send me. Number six on the list is Nigeria. In the north, it's dominated by Muslims and they have gangs that will brutally attack Christians there. In fact, one pastor in Zechariah, he recalls that on the 15th of May, 
uh, groups invaded his home. They killed his wife and his children, and he had to flee for his life. And listen to how he's praying for Christians today. He's praying that they would be strengthened in their faith so that we can continue to work for Christ here on earth and not be afraid, and that God will encourage them to hold on to him and never turn back. When you hear things like that, it, it makes coming here a lot different, doesn't it? And it also means that when you go to your homes today, there's a lot less that you have to worry about than these brothers and sisters. And though we're seeing some hostility increasing against the Christian faith, even here in the UK, I wonder, have you experienced that? Maybe it's just a, a comment, a look. Maybe it's been more than that. Some slander has come out. But we should be thinking about how will we handle that situation when it comes? Young people, you, you can have situations arise like happened to me when I was in year eight. And in front of the whole student assembly, a, a student across the, the room yelled out to me, I heard you're a born-again Christian. And everyone looked at me, and I thought, what am I going to do in this moment? And I, I kind of said, yeah, I am. And he gave me a big thumbs up, so it wasn't really persecution, but I was terrified just to say that in front of my peers. And I can just imagine for you today what you might face. So where are you going to turn for help to prepare for the inevitable that's going to come? Well, thankfully, whether it's a violent opposition or just social rejection, the Bible has given you everything you need to stand firm in God's grace. And we're going to look at that today. And so the Bible, hopefully you're familiar with it, but it's also something that we should tremble at, that God has spoken, we have his words. And in fact, Psalm 19, verse 9, it says that the Bible, it's called the fear of the Lord. It should stir up in us a, a deep awe and reverence for God and for his word. And one of the ways that we can demonstrate that is by simply standing while we read. I just want to read this passage for you. So please, let's read together in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. And this is Holy Scripture. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. The fear of the Lord is clean and it endures forever, so welcome it today. You may be seated. Well, today we're going to be in just verses 14 through 19. We looked at the first two verses last week, but here's the big idea. So our text reveals three purposes for Christian suffering. And that's so that you will entrust yourself to your faithful creator. That's the whole point of this section. Peter wants you to know how to entrust yourself to God. 
And that's the best way to prepare for any Christian suffering. So the three purposes for suffering, the first one we see is that Christian suffering exalts in verses 14 through 16. It evaluates in verses 17 through 18. And then it expects in verses, verse 19. So here's that first purpose. It's that it exalts. Now I want you to notice first that it exalts Christians. So look back at verse 14. He says, if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Ridiculed. You've probably been ridiculed at some point in your life. It's, it's usually a verbal assault. It's a way of kind of knocking you down. What's interesting is that it, this is a present tense verb. It, it means that this is something that was ongoing. It wasn't just a one and done situation. And it was being spread out among the churches that were in modern day Turkey who Peter's writing to. But we have to remember that this shouldn't surprise us because Christ said, if they insulted me, they're going to insult you. In fact, you remember that on the cross, he was insulted as he hung there, offering himself as a ransom for those who were enemies of God. And Matthew 27 talks about that the passersby were disparaging him with their words. Even the leaders stood by and openly mocked him as he hung there. So when you're insulted for his name, Peter is saying that actually you are blessed. How's that for biblical logic? Is that how your mind works? Because mine doesn't. And so we need scripture to help us realize how are you blessed? In a very real way, you are taking the blows that are meant for Jesus. You're standing, as it were, in his place. An example of what it looks like to to be in someone's place happened in 1981, March, the 30th of March. Uh, The man shot at President Ronald Reagan six times. And the quick actions of one Secret Service agent got him into a car. They rushed him to a hospital. But as the limo sped away, another agent, his name is Tim McCarthy, he lay wounded on the ground. He threw himself in front of the president without any protection, was shot in the chest. Thankfully, he also recovered, and Reagan later sent him a personal letter. Listen to what he said. There will always be special gratitude, I feel, for your extraordinary heroism on that cold day in March. It is a gratitude words can never convey. Now, we're never going to give our lives to save the Lord, but he's always pleased when you receive physical or verbal assault on his behalf. And it is actually a blessing. How is this a blessing? Well, note that it's for the name of Christ. So it means that this abuse is because they identified openly with Jesus Christ. And what does it mean by his name? It's referring to all that Jesus is, all that he does. And so these insults were thrust at them because they openly spoke about that name. And so these Christians and anyone who's ridiculed today, they are hated because the abusers hate Christ. And they see Christ in you and it arouses their hatred for you as well. You're blessed because you're identifying with Christ. And what's amazing is Peter's writing this and 35 years before, he went through this very thing. He was brought in front of the Jewish leaders because he had been preaching about Jesus Christ. And he was there with the other apostles. And yet he said boldly to these leaders who had the power to kill him as well, he said to them in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
It's the exclusivity of Christ's name. It's him and him alone. And this incites rebellion and hatred in unbelievers. Now, in that time, when Peter stood before the leaders, they were simply reprimanded and commanded, do not speak about this. But they didn't stop. They kept going. The next chapter, they're brought back in. They're arrested. They're threatened. And then they were beaten for speaking the name of Christ. Beloved, consider this. After a short time, the wicked are going to face eternal judgment because ultimately they're insulting Christ himself when they insult you for being a Christian. Judgment will come. Hang on. Stay faithful to the Lord. Now, back in verse 13, which we looked at last week, Peter was talking about a, a future reward. Rejoice in what's coming. But here in verse 14, he's talking about a present reward is for you as well. He says again there, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, as the spirit rests on you, he is giving you resolve to keep holding fast. You, you find strength to go just another round. And your confidence is growing that God is sustaining me. I I can make it one more day. And you realize that nothing can remove you from the grip of God on your life. And you start realizing how blessed you are that God himself takes personal interest in you. And so God actually honors you. He exalts you by giving you his own personal Holy Spirit. And then if you look over at verse Chapter 5, verse 6, you see this flesh out a little bit more. He says, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. When that persecution comes, submit yourself to God. Know that he will raise you up. He will exalt you. He will honor you at the proper time. And I wonder, can you think of any higher honor than God himself doing this for you? It's an inconceivable of what God would do. Now, we hear this about the Spirit of God resting on you, and you might think, how is this different than when I become a Christian? Because we are given the Holy Spirit at the new birth. Now, Peter isn't talking about the new birth here, and at salvation, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You can never have more of the Holy Spirit, you can never have less of the Holy Spirit, but he seals you for the day of salvation. But what he's talking about here is, in these moments, you have an experience with the Holy Spirit that you don't normally have. It provides relief, it provides rest, but it also provides empowerment and courage. One way you see this is in Philippians 4, 7. There it's described as the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. It guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's what happens when the Spirit rests on you. This is also what happened we see to Stephen in Acts chapter 6. He's there before all the leaders, the same ones that have beaten the apostles. And as they look on him, Acts 6 verse 15 says, the leaders saw that his face was like the face of an angel. It means that he was marked by peace and by confidence. And then he launched into an amazing sermon to this hostile crowd that was there. And before he got through the whole thing, the crowd was enraged and they drove him out of the meeting room and they took him outside the city and began to pummel rocks at him to kill him. And I believe it's because the spirit was resting on him that in Acts 7 verse 60, he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then having said this, he fell asleep. This is good to know that your faithfulness in a fiery trail doesn't depend on you plucking up the courage in the moment. God's spirit will come upon you in a way that will support you and sustain you as 
it's not so much about feeling something, but you'll find that you're saying things you didn't think that you could say. Now, you are being exalted by God in that moment, whether you feel like it or not, because in his presence, he is honoring you. Then after he's talking about this, it seems contrary that he would go to the next verse, but he wants to say, this is what I honor. This is what God honors, but this is not what he honors. And he mentions these strange lists of vices. In verse 15, he talks about the murderers. He talks about the, uh, the evildoers. He talks about the thief. He talks about the meddler. And what's interesting is in this, this group of activities, you're not going to find the Holy Spirit present. And so if you're suffering for those activities, God's not going to support you in that. You're going to suffer on your own. Back in this day, murder and thievery could result in execution. Remember the two thieves next to Christ on the cross were being executed for their crimes. Evildoers, it just refers to general crimes. And we know from history, though, that Christians were accused of these very things, false accusations made about them so that they could be imprisoned and they could be executed. But there's one here at the end that seems almost out of place, or a meddler, he says, It could be translated a troublesome meddler. And while this literally means someone who gets in other people's business, they shouldn't be, given the context here, it seems to have political agitators in view. People who are getting involved in upsetting society in ways that they shouldn't. So you could think of protests like riots and looting, that kind of activity. We're not talking about simply signing a petition or peaceful protests. This is referring to people who are using their influence or their voice to interfere with the lawful functioning of the government. And Peter is saying, that should not even be anything you you care about or look into. You should be far away from that. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, this is what Christians should be doing. It says, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. That's what they were to be known for. There was a pastor who was uh, ministering during the communist government in Russia. And he talked about that, how Christians suffered greatly during that time. But they agreed together that they weren't going to be part of an open rebellion. They agreed that the only thing that they would be ridiculed for or arrested for was because they were associating with the name of Christ. And that's the path that these Russian Christians took. Now, when... We do have to disobey the government because they're breaking the laws of God. We do so with a submissive attitude, not with a shaking our fists in their face. We say, I cannot do that and I will receive, I will accept whatever punishment you may have for me. But when a government conflicts with God, God wins every time for the believer. And then we'll be blessed because we are going to have the spirit of God resting on us. So we should sometimes just pause and evaluate why we suffer. Rarely is it because openly they say, it's because you're a Christian, I'm doing this to you. Usually it's under the guise of other accusations. Oftentimes it's like, you're disrupting the peace. For example, a teacher just in the last couple months, he refused to use the preferred pronouns of a transgender student. And so the authorities fired him for that. But the reason they gave was because he was discriminating against the student and he created an unsafe classroom. And this was in spite of all the students and teachers testifying that they felt valued and respected by him. No one could bring a charge against him. 
He didn't seek to stir up trouble. He sought to remain faithful to Christ, and that's what happened to him. Now, ultimately, he suffered for the reason we see in verse 16, because he had the name Christian. Now, in the Greek language, that ending I-A-N, it refers to someone who's a loyal devotee of that person. So to say Christian, it means you're a loyal devotee of Christ. Now, when this was first used, it was not meant in a respectful way. It was derogatory. Because who was Christ? A crucified man, a criminal. You're a devotee of a criminal. And they felt that pressure just in that name alone. So these people, they intended to put pressure. They intended to ridicule to get them to shut up. And because of that external pressure, what was it going to do? It was going to bring shame upon them. And Paul or Peter says to them, in fact, don't let it shame you. Don't let them be ashamed when that comes. It's a command. He's saying, don't let them shame you. And what it's communicating is that they will never be ashamed when it matters most. They might feel it in this moment, but when it matters most, when they're with God, they will not be ashamed. So don't let it shame you now. Now in chapter 2, verse 20, He's talking about this kind of public harassment for devotion. He said, if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. And this finds favor with God. So even when you're doing good things, people still will charge you with hate crimes, hate speech. And there's nothing you can do about that but rest in the Lord. But let's think about this for a second. How do you fight that shame? Have you felt that? Just that you're, you're doing something wrong and everyone's looking at you funny? You just don't know what to do. You want to crawl under a rock somewhere. So how do you fight it? Well, first of all, you fix your mind on God's promised favor. He said, this, doing good, finds favor with God. Even if everyone else doesn't see it as good, God considers it good. And isn't that so much more precious, God's favor, than the fame of the world? So start there, valuing God's favor. Now, shame, it's a painful emotion. It's, it's made to me, make you feel Uh, ugly and just humiliated in front of people. But this is a misplaced shame. You shouldn't feel that because you're doing what's right. So when you have that shame, here's another way we can fight it, is remembering God has already in heaven declared you beloved, innocent of all crimes. Those crimes have been paid for. There's nothing to be ashamed of. And then when you do sin, you know that when you confess those sins, Christ will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There's nothing on your record. God knows everything and he's giving you favor. So here's another way we can fight that shame. And as Paul did, 2 Timothy 1.12, he said, I am not ashamed. And here's how. Here's how he's not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So now, while things are going well, seek to know God. Know this one who guards you. Let this truth encourage you and seize upon it. And then when that rejection comes, you can reject it. You can reject the shame because you know you are being entrusted to God and he will keep you until that last day. Choose to believe the words of Christ and not the words of the shame. Remember, Jesus was slandered for his obedience to God. But he, he never was ashamed. The Jewish leaders called him a drunkard. They called him a, a glutton. But he was never ashamed. They even said all the good works he did was by the power of Satan. But he was never ashamed. Romans ten eleven says, when it comes at you, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
So we battle shame with faith. We take God at his word. In the end, they will stand ashamed before God while God welcomes you into the joy of his shameless kingdom forever. So Christian suffering, it does, exalts you. God honors you with his presence. But here's the second thing it does. It honors and exalts God himself. So look at verse 16. But glorify God in having that name. So we want to exalt God as he is uplifting us. And when we glorify God, it's referring in one sense to rejoicing in his sovereign control over even those who are attacking you. And when you rejoice in that and you joyfully endure, what you're showing is God is more precious than their esteem of you. God is more precious in your personal comfort. God is more precious in your safety. Look, you show that Christ is a magnificent treasure when you rejoice in him, even when everything else is stripped away. And people will marvel, how are you still joyful? Everything is taken away and you say, no, I have more than enough. I still have Christ. Put your faith in him. Let it be deepened. Let it be strengthened. And this will exalt God and your joy will increase. There's a second purpose for Christian suffering. It's that it evaluates. It evaluates our faith. Look at verse 17. Look how it begins here. It says, for the time has come for the judgment to begin with the household of God. You read that, I don't know if you're like me, and you think, well, that's, that's not very encouraging. Well, this reveals why it is such a blessing that the Spirit of God rests on you. If God's judgment is coming, but the Spirit of God rests on you, it's a different kind of a judgment than what the world is going to get. We shouldn't be surprised by fiery trials. We shouldn't be surprised when judgment comes at God's appointed times. But for the Christian, it's a different kind of judgment than what the world will get. This judgment, it speaks about the process in which a judge is evaluating all the evidence and will make a decision. Now, we know, believer, Romans 8 verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But yet, God still takes sin in his house very seriously. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-two shows that the purpose of this judgment is this. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So it's a chastening. It's to burn off our dross. And it makes us tender. It makes us useful for God's kingdom and useful in this world. But it probably caught you off guard like it did me that this judgment begins with the household of God. Why? Why start with us? Aren't we the apple of his eye, his, his inheritance, his pleasure? Well, we know that he's speaking about the church because that term household of God, he used it before in chapter 2, verse 5. In 1 Timothy 3.15, it says the house of God is the church. This is, these are believers. There's two reasons why God would begin with the church. First of all, as I mentioned, it, it chastens us. It, it prepares us. What it does is it helps us to wean from our love of the world. But at the same time, it warns the world. So God, if he will not spare his own people from judgment, then verse 17 continues, and what will be the outcome of those who disobey the gospel of God? God will not cast off those whom he has promised to give to his son as an inheritance. But for those who remain in disobedience to God, they will be cast off from his presence forever. God's 
glory, because it's so offended by the rebellion and open disregard for God, his glory deserves to be esteemed and it deserves to be vindicated. And this will happen at the appointed time, but it begins with the church to warn those who are in disobedience, turn now, turn now before it gets worse because it's so much worse for those who don't have the protection of God. It's a horrific outcome that awaits you. To disobey the gospel, we could say it's a way of talking about disobeying the word of God, the Bible. And the question we might want to ask is, why do people disobey God's law? Some people will obey when it's convenient for them, when it it works in their favor, but in their heart, they don't enjoy submitting to God. Well, we find out that the root cause of disobedience is is just simply, they love their sin. In John 3, 18 through 20, it says, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Did you hear that? Friend, the reason why you don't obey God's law is because you love your sin. Something that you value more. You love the darkness. This is insanity. You prefer the sin that will kill your soul to living in submission to a good and righteous God because we want to be our own king. Friend, this is high treason and it comes with a high cost. The Bible says that many people think that they are Christians, but they actually are deceived. They've never been born again. People will come to the church for a variety of reasons. They like the fellowship. They like the friendship. They enjoy the music. There's all sorts of different reasons, but they've never repented. They've never grieved over how their sin has dishonored God. They've never humbled themselves under God's mighty right hand. They've never been amazed that Christ willingly died in their place. One who never knew sin or sin himself. The one who endured the full outpouring of God's wrath. And they disregard it. They don't value that. We can spot them by their fruit. The Bible says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Ultimately, what is the fruit that we would identify a Christian by? Obedience. Joyful, glad obedience to the Lordship of Christ. It doesn't mean we live a perfect life. When we sin, a true believer is grieved by that sin. We cannot remain in it for a long period of time. But ultimately, the believer delights in obedience and pressing on to obey the gospel. Now, the word gospel, in case you're not familiar with it, it means good news. It's a good news that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, friend, what does the gospel command of you? To repent and believe on Jesus Christ. Turn from your own ways and follow the way of Christ. There's a danger if you continue in your disobedience. And verse 18 says it. If a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? See, the, the righteous, it just describes someone who God has justified, declared to be righteous, and they, they're declared to be righteous by faith, and then they live by that faith. But when it says they're saved by, with difficulty, it doesn't mean that they are, are trying really hard to be saved. It means they're saved along with difficulty. Jesus said it, John seven fourteen, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. For those who find it are few. 
So yes, you are being saved along with difficulty. It brings difficulty. Even Paul and Barnabas are visiting churches. And this is how they encourage the churches. They, they strengthen them. They encourage them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Instead of discouraging them and, and scaring them off, this actually caused them to be encouraged and stand firm in the faith. And so believer, you, you will be saved, but it's going to be through a time of difficulty. Now, one of the ways that Christian suffering, it evaluates those who are Christ because they remain with Christ. But it also evaluates those who don't have faith. And it gives them the opportunity to turn and follow Christ. There's a distinction between the earthly sufferings that purify and the eternal sufferings which lead to destruction. Listen to how these are combined in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I have to ask you, what is the basis for your confidence that you won't receive the judgment of God on that day? What are you trusting in? I hope it's the Lord Jesus Christ because that's all you're going to be able to offer on your defense. So Christian suffering, it evaluates and that produces assurance in believers and it provides an opportunity for others to repent and believe. Well, there's a third purpose we want to finish our time with. Third purpose for suffering, it expects spiritual fruit. So look back at verse 19. So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing good. This is actually the summary of verses 12 through 18. This is what it all comes down to. And it's all happening because it's God's will. Oh, believer, just know this. God is not absent while your suffering happens. When Peter preached his first sermon in Acts 2, 23, he said, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. God planned that, and yet, those who were attacking Christ, Peter said, they were fully responsible for their actions. They freely crucified Christ. And he says to them, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. So it was according to God's definite plan. He foreknew it from the foundation of the world, and yet they weren't mindless robots when they were bringing the persecution against the church. They freely chose to do this. This is a divine mystery that we cannot fully grasp, but we must take it at God's word because that's what he says. But I bring that up for a very important reason. There's no greater wickedness, no greater persecution than what happened to Christ. If that was planned by God, believer, whatever persecution you experience here, be assured God also has planned that. He oversees all the crucifixion details, and he also oversees all the details for your suffering for the name of Christ. What that means is it's not going to go one moment more than what God has decided. They cannot inflict one more word against your character than what God will allow. And then he guides us how to think through this by saying who it is that is doing this. In the Greek language, Peter begins the next phrase by saying, faithful creator. 
He wants this in the forefront of our minds because if you lose sight of this, it's easy to get distracted and discouraged. Our focus starts with a faithful creator. This is what the prophet Jeremiah did. He was in Jerusalem as it's being sieged by Babylon and people were doing horrific things. There was great suffering. He chronicled it in the book of Lamentations. But right in the middle of all this horrific judgment, he writes this, Lamentations 3 verse 21. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. When life doesn't make sense, recall the faithfulness of God like Jeremiah did. And then you will have hope. He's faithful, but he's also the creator. Think about the infinite power that God unleashed when he spoke everything into existence out of nothing. And as creator, his infinite power sustains all of creation. And also, since he created you, he knows what is best for you. Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ Jesus is now upholding the universe by the word of his power. So at your worst moment, the worst suffering, Jesus is still upholding you. He is there with you. So beloved, your faithful creator who has all the authority and the power to create and to destroy, to govern and to judge, he is overseen with compassion and great care what you go through now. It doesn't matter how much, how many people come against you. It doesn't matter how many times the government will put you in prison. Ultimately, Christ has a final say in what's going to happen. Remember all the words of the, the nations it says in 1 Peter 24, or chapter 1, verse 24, all flesh is like grass, all of its glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And God's word to you, believers, you are mine. He's not going to let you go. So we have this faithful creator, and then Christian suffering will expect that in light of that, you're going to entrust yourself to him, your soul, the very center of who you are, all that you are. And this requires deep confidence that he's not going to betray your trust. We've all been hurt by relationships, haven't we? People who said they're going to do something and they didn't. God will never let you down so you can give yourself fully over to him, find rest in his care and his purpose. Jesus did the same thing as he hung on the cross. After spending three hours under the wrath of God upon him, he came to the end in Luke 23, 46. He called out with a loud voice and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last. If Jesus can do it, And we're called to walk in his steps and believe, or you can as well, and trust yourself to him. During his greatest suffering, he trusted his father, and we can do the same thing. So we entrust ourselves to him, even if obedience will lead to a broken relationship. Even if it means there will be persecution. Because you know that obedience can cost you dearly, right? So you entrust yourself to God. You remember that he will exalt you, and you will exalt God in that. And then on the last day, you'll remember that what God said is true, that this is a light and momentary affliction, and it cannot compare to the weight of glory that you're going to walk into. So when you're suffering because of your obedience, make it your daily practice to entrust yourself to him. Give your life to him as a daily living sacrifice. And I just want to flesh this out for a second with you. 
John the Baptist, he did good because he entrusted himself to God. John the Baptist preached to people about the need to repent. And then he did something that isn't, isn't really politically correct. He called out Herod Antipas, the, the ruler of the land, and he said, it's not right that you've married your brother's sister. And because of that, because of doing good and warning this man, he was thrown into prison and later he was beheaded. It cost him dearly, but he had to confront the man about the unlawful marriage. What you have to understand, beloved, is when you do good, as God considers it good, the world may not consider that good. In fact, it may consider it hateful and wrong, but we always want to side with what God has said to do. So doing good means we speak the truth in love. It means we pray for our persecutors. It means we serve them. But it also means that at times we speak the truth that what is being done and said is wrong. And we do that as gently as we can, but this is what we are called to. Doing good is the natural outflowing of a heart that is entrusted to God. How can you do that? Because God is a faithful creator. So we've seen these three purposes for Christian suffering. It's all for this great end that you would entrust yourself to God. Remember, you've been created, you've been saved by God, and you've been created for good works that God prepared for you beforehand that you should walk in them. Music team, I hope that you could come back up. We're going to sing a closing song. And what's interesting is that we consider Peter wrote this whole letter so that even us today can stand firm in God's grace. But it begins as we entrust ourselves to him. The song we're going to sing is talking about God knows our ways. In other words, he plans them. Whether it's a hard way or an easy way, it's under God's control. So as we sing, let's practice entrusting ourselves to him.